Out there where you are, I just pray that you will take your Bible and join us in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, and you will stay with us during this time as we look at a soft pillow for a weary heart. Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You don't have to travel very far to find a weary heart. If you will look around, you will find people that over that lower eyelid Liquid love is flowing, making a little tear streak down through the cheek. Look at that liquid love and try to figure out, how can I minister? How can I help? But keep in mind that God wipes away all tears from our eyes. If you will listen carefully, you will hear some groans and moans. Some people might be saying, somebody help me. Somebody come and minister to me. Somebody love me. Because we're living in a world filled with a lot of hurt, anxiety. But it's so good to know that in the midst of all of this, whatever our struggle might be, there is a loving Father in heaven that cares. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Maybe you might go look in the mirror and you might be that person flooding that liquid love, giving out that groan or moan and asking, somebody help me. Keep in mind that whatever the need might be, it could be physical, it could be family, it could be financial, it could just be some struggle maybe no one is aware of around you, but still on the inside You feel like you're coming apart. You feel like the world is crashing in on you. And you wonder in the midst of all of this, is there any help? Is there any answer? And as a Christian, we can experience the same trials and troubles that people who do not know Jesus experience. When Jesus looked at those 11 faithful apostles on the night that he was arrested that Thursday night, He looked at them and he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There is a soft satin pillow provided by a loving God that any person can bring a weary, beaten, battered heart and place upon that pillow and find some comfort and find some rest. That's what Paul is talking about in one of the greatest passages of truth, all the Bible's truth. But what a marvelous passage. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This morning, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture from two viewpoints. First of all, we want to look and see what Paul is not saying. And you might say, uh, Claude, that's an unusual way to approach a sermon. But I think it's crucial 
that we understand four definite things that Paul is not saying. Because sometimes you will hear it said, this is what he's saying. But it's really what he is not saying. And then we'll come to the positive. We don't want anyone to go home or stay at home or try to live on a flat tire. We want you to have four good, firm tires. And so we're not going to go home. We're not going to leave you alone with a flat tire. As we look at four things that Paul is not saying, notice this. Paul does not say that all things work together for good for all people. Let me say it again. Paul does not say all things work together for good for all people. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. The good of those who love Him. Phillips translates this, Moreover, we know that to those who love God, who are called according to His plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Williams translates it. Yes, we know that all things go on working together for the good of those who keep on loving God. We are called in accordance with God's purpose. God has a purpose. He has a plan for every person, for every nation, for every church, for the whole world. But His plan always has to fit in our loving Him. That is the key. So keep in mind that our trials and our troubles and our sorrows and our heartaches are going to make us either better or bitter, and we will make the choice. We will decide whether this is going to make me a better person or I'm going to come and live as a bitter person. I want to give you two examples that proves this. One of these examples comes from the newspaper Billy Graham wrote a syndicated column for a lot of years, and this is what, what he received one day. I have a son, 14 years old, who had an accident last August. For months I have prayed that he would recover, but the doctors tell me that he will never be any better. I wish I could express the hatred for this stinking rat called God. Please tell him when you pray how much I despise him. My heart breaks when I read that because what a sad, sad attitude. What's the problem? She has led a very heartache, tragic experience of life, make her extremely bitter. Now, as you have listened to that, God called a rat. I want you to listen to this. This is from the Oklahoma Baptist Messenger. That's the state paper in the state of Oklahoma. In New Mexico, we have the Baptist New Mexican. This is what it says. Our son, Brian Keith Lewis, was in a fatal accident on March the 22nd. He was 21 years old, our only child. Keith was a faithful Christian and a good witness. He had a loving and tender heart. Not only did he love everyone, he was loved by everyone he came in contact with. People were very kind during our loss, but had he not been a Christian, I doubt if we could have kept our sanity. For 21 years, he brought love and peace to our home. For parents, we must tell you, 
Don't let another minute go by if God is not in your life. Our hearts are broken because we lost one of, most, one of our most prized gifts, a gift that God loaned us for a short while. Surely our grief is worth all the happiness we had. We can say that we know Keith is in the presence of our Lord. And then they conclude with this paragraph. If your son or daughter were taken, could you say the same thing? To Keith we say, thank you for loving us and letting us love you in return. To God we say, amen. Now I want to ask a question. What is the basic difference in someone calling God a rat and someone saying to God, we say, amen. There is one difference. Loving God. Loving God. Paul does not say that all things work together for good for all people. All things do work together for good for those who love God. There is a second thing that Paul does not say that this verse speaks to. Paul does not say that everything that happens is good. He does not say that everything that happens is good. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him in all things. When Paul says that, he's talking about the good and the bad. He's talking about righteousness and evil. He's talking about everything that happens in life. And he does not say that everything that happens is good. Car wrecks are not good. Domestic abuse is not good. Child abuse is not good. Drive-by shootings are not good. Mass shootings are not good. Starvation is not good. There are a lot of things in life that are not good. And God's Word never says that they're good. And certainly the Apostle Paul in this passage of Scripture never says anything about them being good. Let's look for just a moment at disease, at sickness. In the Scriptures, we know that Jesus truly is the great physician. He performed 41 healing miracles. Notice that He never performed a healing miracle on a person that medical science could have taken care of it. He never set broken bones. He never healed rashes. He healed leprosy, blindness, deafness, lameness. He even resuscitated three people back to life after they had died. Why didn't Jesus leave those people alone if disease is good? Because disease is not good. And God never says that it is. And Paul certainly, in this verse, never indicates that it is. On one occasion, Jesus had 5,000 people to sit down and he fed them. Another occasion, he had 4,000 people to sit down and he fed them because he said for people to be hungry is not good. Starvation is not good. And if all of these things that sometimes are so horrible in life, if we try to say they're good, then why isn't heaven going to be filled with them? Because the scripture is very clear. Listen to what John writes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. No, heaven's going to be void 
of all of the things that we have talked about very briefly, the accidents, the shootings, the rapes, the disease, the sufferings, all of that's going to be wiped out and there will not be any more of those hurts and pains because heaven's a perfect place and we live in an imperfect world in an imperfect body and we're going to experience as we move through life good and bad. So Paul does not say that everything that happens is good. There's a third thing he does not say. Paul does not say that everything that happens is God's doing. So often I hear someone say rather flippantly or maybe they just don't know. When something very tragic happens, they say it's the will of God. No, there are a lot of things that happen in life that are not the will of God. And certainly God does not do evil. James says in 1.12, For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is love. He does not do evil. He does not do that. Back in the book of Job, there are two verses I want us to look at. Job 1 and verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, God and Satan's been having a conversation about Job. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Job was going to go through a test, a great test of his faith, of of the cause of his love for God. Satan says, Job serves you, God, because of what he gets from you. You've built a heavenly pipeline from heaven into his very front room and turned on the spigot and it runs full flow with blessings and goodness. But if you'll shut off the spigot, he'll curse you to your face. God said, I don't think he will. And God gave Satan permission, permission to touch Job. Very quickly, we see that a storm hits and kills all 10 of Job's children, seven sons and three daughters. And then His servants begin to trickle in and say, all of the cattle are gone, and the sheep are gone, and the oxen are gone, and the servants are gone. Then I want to turn to chapter 2 and read verse 7. God and Satan's had another discussion about Job. And uh, God says, have you looked at Job? Have you looked at him? Did you see what he said? Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And Satan says, Yeah, I know, but it's flesh for flesh. You haven't let me touch him. I've touched everything around him, but I haven't touched him. Verse 7, chapter 2, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Hear this godly man. God complimented him three times about what kind of a man that he was. But we see he's sitting in a mass of boils, cancerous-type sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. But he says in the last in verse 10, and all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So we want to keep in mind 
that not everything that happens is God's doing. Let's don't credit God with Satan's work of evil. Sometimes we want to keep in mind that um, a lot of things happen that we don't understand. We don't understand. I had a wonderful Greek New Testament professor while in college. His name was Dr. Fred Howard. And he gave me a poem one day. I was in his church, College Heights Baptist Church in Plainview, Texas. And I had mentioned something along this line. And he said to me, he said, uh, Claude, I want to give you a poem that I wrote. It's called God's Will Be Done. A lifeless child lay on the ground with morbid people gathered round. His mother's lover in a rage had killed him at this tender age. Some thoughtless person from the crowd quite piously intoned aloud, God's will was done. I answered no in angry voice. An evil man has made this choice. God loves all children in the world. He in his anger has not hurled this precious child to mangled death and viciously snuffed out his breath. Man's will was done. A lovely girl lay sick in bed. From cancer soon she would be dead. Her loved one's friends were asking why a child so young must waste and die. Their pastor said, if good or ill, whatever happens is God's will. God's will be done. I answered, no, God wills us life, not diseases, sin, and strife. Our Lord explains so all may know that Satan bowed a woman low, but Jesus healed her body then, just as he also saves from sin. There are a lot of things that happen in life that are not God's will. Everything, yes, does happen within his permissive will. God permitted Satan to touch Job two times. But it has to come through God's permissive will, and it is not his intentional will. There's a fourth thing we want to notice that the verse does not say. The verse does not say that everything that happens is good as we define the word good. You say, uh, Claude, you're making a backdoor escape hatch to try to cover everything you've said. No, I want us to see. I want us to see exactly God's definition of what good really is. Because his definition and ours often is not the same. Now, sometimes we say things like this. Uh, we're thankful for good health. It's so good to have a good income. I'm blessed with a good marriage. I have good children. I have good, this is a good economy. We're having good weather. Or we might just uh, underline everything by saying, uh, oh, I'm enjoying the good life. Now keep in mind that God wants us to have the good life because he wants us to have eternal life. He wants our sins to be forgiven. He wants us to be right with him. He wants us to have Jesus as our Savior. He wants the Holy Spirit to live in us, producing his fruit. And the first three fruit are love and joy and peace. And Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So we want to keep in mind that God, yes, he's a loving father. He is not uh, the twin brother of Ebenezer Scrooge. 
He wants to give. What, what good is love if you can't give it away? What value is there in love if you can't give it away? And God wants to give his love and he wants to give it away. But I want us to turn to the Old Testament, to Genesis. In Genesis, there is one of my heroes of the Old Testament, Joseph. Very quickly, I want you to see Joseph. When he's 17 years old, his 10 half-brothers, those 10 half-brothers, he has a full brother, Benjamin. They have the same mother. But these other half-brothers, they have different mothers. Six of them have the same mother. But anyway, they're very jealous of Joseph. He's 17. And so they grab him one day and pitch him into a pit. And they don't really know what to do with him, but a slave caravan comes by, and uh, so they decide to sell him. They sell him into slavery. They, he, they have him hauled off to Egypt. In Egypt, he begins to find favor. And a man named Potiphar, very high in the Pharaoh's system, says, I'm going to bring you into my house and make you my slave, my servant. So he's brought into Potiphar's house. The Bible says that Joseph was very handsome and very well built. And Potiphar's wife started trying to seduce him. She worked at that every day, the scripture says. And finally, one day she just, I guess, comes to her wit's end and she grabs him and she's going to drag him to the bedroom. But he peels out of his coat and takes off. And so she begins to yell, rape rape. When her husband comes home, she still has his coat and says, look, this servant you brought into the house, I want you to know that uh, he tried to rape me. And so Potiphar has Joseph put in the prison. Best we can tell, he spent about 13 years in the prison. While he's in the prison, uh, two other folks are there, a cupbearer and a baker. And Joseph interprets their dreams, and the baker is hanged, as Joseph said would happen. But the cupbearer went back to Potiphar's palace. And uh, the scripture says that the cupbearer forgot him, forgot him. But Pharaoh began to have dreams, and two years later, after the cupbearer had gone back, Joseph, Joseph is having these terrible dreams. And the cupbearer said, well, there's a fellow out in the prison that interprets dreams. He interpreted mine. He interpreted the baker's. So they send for Joseph, and uh, they bring him in. And sure enough, he interprets the dreams. They're going to be seven very prosperous, abundant years, but they're going to be seven very, very lean starvation years. And so um, Joseph is elevated, number two, in all of Egypt, only under Pharaoh. So what Joseph had done. Uh, Said interpretation of the dream, that's exactly what took place. These brothers, these half-brothers, still in their own homeland, starvation hits there. Two hard, lean years. They make their way to Egypt seeking food, nourishment. They hear that there are barns that are full over there. So uh, when they're there, these brothers come in before him. And uh, Joseph knows who they are that they're his half-brothers that sold him into slavery. But they do not know who Joseph is. And so as they're there before him, I want to read to you what Joseph says to them. This is Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants, he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. 
So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? That's Jacob. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had, come, had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Listen carefully, dear people. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. I want you to listen to chapter 50. Because... Jacob has died. He's the father of these 12 boys. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. And fearing that Joseph has kept pent up anger, damned up on the inside, now that dad's gone and he won't be hurt, he's going to pour all of that wrath out on them. And so they come into his presence. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers their sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Listen carefully, carefully to what Joseph says. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, am I your judge? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. We need to always let God's dictionary. Here it is. Now, Claude Cohn might have a dictionary, but God has the perfect dictionary. And Joseph said, you intended, I know what you meant to do. You meant to do away with me. But God intended it for good. We must always let God's definition of good become our definition of good. Now, let's turn the page just for a moment. What is Paul really saying? What is he, we saw four things that he is not saying. What is he really saying? And there are three things that we want to see. First of all, as believers, we will experience good and evil in this world. We live in an evil world. The Bible says that Satan's a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And who can know it? 
So we have two things. We have opposition in Satan, and we have a sin nature in ourselves. We want to keep in mind that some of God's greatest people have experienced tremendous sorrow. Just point out two. Job. Can you imagine what they, when they, when they said to him, your children are all dead, all ten of them. Your seven sons and three daughters. And he had to say, go out to the family plot and dig ten fresh graves. Or he had to say to the funeral director, I need ten identical caskets. What sorrow must have flooded his soul? Then I think about the mother of Jesus. I see her standing at the foot of the cross with the apostle John. And seeing her son, he's already been spit upon and backslapped and whipped and beaten and cursed and ridiculed. And now he's hanging between two thieves, dying. And she was told when they dedicated Jesus that the day would come that a sword would pierce her heart. And it did as she stood there that day. What enormous sorrow flooded her. So sometimes as faithful servants... As God's people, we experience enormous sufferings. We also experience injustices. I look in the Old Testament and I see a very godly family, Naboth and his family. But there's Jezebel and her husband Ahab wants the vineyard that belongs to Naboth. So Jezebel sends out some of her troops and they stone all of Naboth's family to death so that Ahab can have the vineyard. What a tremendous injustice. I see John the Baptist in a prison. Jesus said, there hasn't been a man born among women greater than John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. But I see him brought out of his prison cell, and he's beheaded. Probably in his mid-30s. He's six months older than Jesus. Jesus died about 33 and a half but I see John the Baptist put to death. Yes, there are injustices that come in life. There are sufferings that come in life. There is pain that comes in life because we're in a world of good and evil. And keep in mind that evil people experience some of God's greatest goodness because an, an atheist, a blasphemer, a ridiculer of God can always sit down to a table of plenty, step out and breathe wonderful fresh air. If he has a heart attack, he can be rushed down to the hospital and get the latest, best medical treatment available. So they experience God's blessings. And sometimes we experience Satan's grasp, tear, rip. Because we live in a world of good and evil. There's a second thing. God can always bring the highest good from the worst evil. We don't want to be so thankful that he does say that we know that in all things, the good and the bad, the sweet and the sour, the sunshine and the shadows, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His 
purpose. There is unthinkable evil in the world, and uh, we pray that it won't touch us, but sometimes it does. I want us to go back one more time and take a glimpse at Joseph. Now, we've already looked at his life. We've already looked at his assuring his brothers that nothing bad was going to happen to them. But there's something that I want us to notice. When Pharaoh said, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He's saying this to Joseph after Joseph has just come straight from the prison and interpreted his dream. He says, you're going to be in charge. When his brothers, after the father Jacob has died, come in and throw themselves at Joseph's feet and says, we are your slaves. You remember what Joseph said? I want to read it again. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. One man who went through all of that, the pit, to Potiphar's, to the prison, to the palace, went through all of that, stayed faithful to God, true to God, I can't see any place he ever said, why me? Why me? And I want to ask you a question. As a 17-year-old boy in the pit, did he know that, well, this is part of the journey. One of these days, I'm going to be the guy responsible for keeping a whole land from starvation. I don't think he knew that at all. When he got to Potiphar's house and was falsely accused by her, did he say, well, I've got to get on to the prison because that's the next step. I don't think he had any idea that was going to happen. When he was in the prison 13 years and forgotten by the cupbearer for two years, did he then know, well, this is, this is getting close to the time? No, when he finally interpreted Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh made him number two in command in the land, I think then he knew, God's going to use me to save the whole land from starvation. So we want to keep in mind that God always brings the highest good out of the worst evil. There's a third thing we want to notice that um, Paul is saying, God will use both the good and the bad to help us to become like Jesus Christ. God will use both the good and the bad that comes to our lives to make us like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus Christ is totally dust and deity. He is Mary's son, flesh and blood. But he is God's son, only begotten, the only one of his kind. He is God's son. He's totally man, and he's totally God. Jesus came to this earth to show us what God is really like. When that apostle asked him the night he was, that, the, that Jesus was arrested, uh, Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So he 
is totally God. He shows us exactly what God is like. But he also shows us what every person ought to be like. Martin Luther said that every Christian should be a Christ in miniature. God wants us all to be like our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ himself. Listen again to what the scripture says. The likeness of his son, the image of his son, the pattern of his son, molded into the image of his son. So whatever comes to us, good or bad, sweet or sour, we need to say, God, use it, the blessing or the blasting, to help me to become more like Jesus Christ. My friend and the friend of many of you listening today, Wayne Barber, often said this. I quote him many times because I love it. Let Jesus be Jesus in you. The Holy Spirit's in us. Jesus is in us. But we have got to be committed to him, yielded to him, that Jesus can be Jesus in us. This is a beautiful illustration. The little boy, his mother was a widow. Little children at home, but he was old enough to go down to the, to the train station, to the subway depot. His mother made cinnamon rolls early in the morning, and he'd go down and try to sell them to the people rushing off to get on the train. Little fellow on a cold, windy morning there trying to sell his goods. One fellow running to get to the train bumped into him and knocked him down and sent his cinnamon rolls and his money scattering in every direction. The little fellow on the ground looked up and the fellow yelled back at him, Get out of the way, kid! But a fellow right behind him set his briefcase down and he began to pick up rolls and he took the basket and he began to put those rolls back in. The money he could find, all that he could find, he began to put it in the basket. And finally when he got everything together, he handed it to the little fellow. And he said, God bless you. He picked up his briefcase and ran to try to get into that closing door on the subway. And the little fellow looked at him and he yelled. He said, hey, mister. Are you Jesus? Do you long for people in this dark, sin-cursed world to look at you and say, Are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? And God uses all of the events of life, circumstances of life, the sunshine and the shadows, to shape us, form us into the likeness of His Son. And that is the ultimate, that's the ultimate good, is to be like Jesus. I want to close with a clipping. This is from the Arkansas Baptist paper. It's called, All Things Work Together. And this is what it says. Monroe Hunt sat and stared at the young man seated on the other side of the courtroom. His heart was pounding. This was about the hardest thing the Lord had ever asked him to do. He had left the same he had felt the same urging that night of the accident scene as the rescue team worked fervently to free his daughter's body from the mangled automobile. But he was struggling with a question. Why her? She was just a high school junior, 
pretty, popular. Just a year before, she had committed her life to mission service. Jeanette was a breath of fresh air, a teenager trying hard to please the Lord. She had been on her way to a country fair at Perryville from her home in Plainview. She had a friend. She and a friend headed east on Highway 60, laughing and talking excitedly about the fair. Her friend's 11-month-old daughter played happily beside them. Then it happened all too quickly. They rounded a curve to find another vehicle speeding toward them on the wrong side of the road. Jeanette's friend swerved, but too late. The other vehicle plowed into the passenger side of the car, killing Jeanette and the baby instantly. Hunt and his wife, LaVita, rushed to the scene. They watched helplessly for four hours as a rescue team untangled the wreckage. Off to the side, a trooper had arrested the other driver, intoxicated. The Lord was telling me to go over and witness to him, recalls Hunt, who was pastor of the Blufftown Church at the time. I just couldn't do it. I kept asking, what good would it do? He's been drinking and using drugs. He might be belligerent. He might reject what I have to say. While they waited for the trial date, Hunt struggled with his grief and anger. The Lord kept urging him to go and visit the young man who lived in Ola, just five miles away. Hunt kept putting it off. He continued to resist during the trial. One part of him wanted to share God's love, but another part wanted to tell him, you're going to get what you deserve. Finally, he asked Tom Derry, pastor of the Plainview Church, to walk with him over to the table where the young man sat waiting for the jury to return with its verdict. As he walked up, the Lord removed the barrier, said Hunt. It was like I was talking to my own son. When the young man looked up and saw Hunt headed toward him, he broke into tears. Hunt opened his Bible and talked with him about his need for Jesus. The young man prayed to receive Christ. I kept thinking about Romans 8.28, said Hunt, who now pastors at Sologolicha. It was not a good thing that happened to us, but seven young people accepted Christ at the funeral, and then this young man made a profession of faith. We want to give God the glory. He really can work good in any circumstance. Would you bow with me? Loving Father, we're grateful for this great truth that you, our loving, caring, forgiving, giving Father, can always bring good out of any setting, any circumstance, any event. You have the power and the ability to bring forth good. And the bottom line, final total of that good is to make us like Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, in the midst of coronavirus and all that's taking place, I pray that you will bring a lot of good out of a very dark, sad day in the world. Father, I just pray that our, our reaction always be, Lord, use this to make me better and don't let me become bitter. Lord, do your work, do your will. I pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening this morning wherever you are through the streaming. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, 
I'd encourage you this moment to pray to Him, not to me, I'm just a man, but to Jesus, Creator of the universe, only begotten Son of God, Savior of the world, coming King of kings and Lord of lords. Pray to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I turn away from a sin-style life. Come and enter my life. Live in my heart. I turn my whole life over to you. I pray that you will do that. If you have done that, or if you'd like to have some prayer, some comfort, there's some phone numbers on the screen. Look at those, the pastor on call, the prayer line. Call one of those two numbers, and someone from this, this good church will respond to you today. And I do pray that you have found God's soft satin pillow for a very tired, weary, beaten heart. And just rest, rest your need upon that pillow. Remember, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God bless you.